0: Okay, Jesse, last week's episode could have strictly been a PSA for birth control, but also warned our fellow pet lovers to be weary of their vets. What's the story this week?
1: A missing woman's family's tireless crusade to find their loved one helps to uncover another murder and solve a 20-year-plus mystery. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back everyone to Love Murder, a podcast about schemes, dreams, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show.
0: Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to Patreon.com/slashLoveMurderPod, and you can learn all about the different tiers of support and all of the fun things that you get. Our water bottles are in production, Jesse. Yay! So
1: excited. Finally, yep. it has been an yep. uphill battle, but you guys deserve it. You beautiful, lovely patrons. They're going to be awesome. Yeah, we can't wait to get them out to you. But speaking of new patrons, we are thrilled, as always, to welcome a new set of awesome peeps. Debbie T. and Janice C. Carrie C. and Heather G. Sarah T. and Colleen D. And finally, Julie M. All right, so... This week was almost a two-parter. I think I could have gone there. There was a lot going on. There's a lot of moving parts. I might start doing two-parters, guys, but don't worry. If I do, I'll release it for like the second day, like maximum Friday. I solemnly swear. (laughs) However, this one is not. We're going to do this one in one. And this was inspired by a book that I bought by one of our most used authors, Michael Fleeman. I've probably had this book on my shelf since the beginning, and I'm glad to finally delve into this one. So the book is called The Stranger in My Bed by Michael Fleeman. I also read an incredible book by a loved one of somebody in this story called My Sister is Missing, Bringing a Killer to Justice by Sherry Gladden Davis. There was a Forensic Files episode, season nine, episode 19 called Deadly Matrimony, and... The first time that I've gotten the chance to use this show, but probably not the last, is Who the Bleep Did I Marry? Wow. What channel is that on? Oh, God. I used to watch it back in San Francisco. Also, I just said
0: channel. I just totally dated myself. (laughs) I think it
1: was on like... What channel is that on? (laughs) God knows what channel it was on, but I know it's now on Discovery Plus, if you guys have Discovery Plus. And of course you have Discovery Plus because you probably watch Investigation Discovery and all of the trashy 90 Day Fiance shows like I like. And stream it like a normal person. And stream it? What channel? (laughs) I don't know. It's regionally on the 48. (laughs) Okay, so after that very lengthy list of sources, we are going to jump right in to a mystery solved by love and perseverance. Spring had finally come to Northwestern Indiana. Sam Kennedy was enjoying his work with the Newton County Highway Department. Just as much as you can. It's work, after all. It was Tuesday, April 22nd, 1980, and the skies were blue and clear. The temperature in the 50s. It was downright balmy compared to the long cold winter he and his road crew had endured. Now they were making repairs caused by months of ice and snow and salt and melt. As Sam stood on the highway and watched as his crew caught up, his eyes scanned the surrounding country pastures. And that's when he saw it, a wooden box that appeared to be homemade. It was about five feet long and roughly two feet wide. It looked about the same size as the type of large toolbox that some people put in the beds of their pickup trucks. Yep. It was clear that it had remained in the drainage ditch for a long time. It was discolored. It was choked by weeds. It was made out of plywood and sealed with nails. This was certainly not something that was meant to be opened. It was clear. There's not, like, this isn't a trunk. There's no box, like, place to open it. When Sam's partner caught up with him, they lifted up the box and carried it to their work truck. Sam used a crowbar to pry open the lid and find out what there was to see. First, a musty smell hit him hard, like mold, wet, rot. His eyes then saw a green quilt and then some denim and cloth. He poked through the material with the crowbar until it was pushed aside, and he found himself staring face to face with a grinning human skull. No. hmm
0: I guess I didn't realize that it would fit in there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not a very large box, five feet long, two feet wide. The authorities were immediately called, and they began to unravel the contents of the tiny coffin. There was lots of women's clothes, all size small, hippie ish peasant shirts, and bell bottom jeans. It was clear that it was a very small woman who had been in the box for a long time. Only her bones remained, although some brown hairs remained attached to the skull, and they did recover a gold crucifix on a chain and two rings. The bones were dry and dark, but that wasn't what was unusual about the skeleton. The unusual thing, and probably the reason why you didn't think a whole body could fit into this small box, was because the corpse was missing their lower legs underneath the kneecaps. The bones showed cuts about two inches below the knees and no trace of the shins, ankles, or feet contained in the box.
0: Oh, gosh.
1: Yeah, it's real harsh. Forensic pathologists and anthropologists studied the bones and determined that the woman had likely been in her early 20s, had never given birth, and based on the beautiful teeth and bone structure of the skull, had probably been very, very pretty. For several weeks, investigators combed through missing persons reports, but there were absolutely no matches. The media picked up on the the lady-in-the-box phenomenon, and public interest drove the case forward, but eventually all leads ended at dead ends the lady in the box was laid to rest in the closest township to where she had been discovered, Morocco, Indiana. Her simple tombstone read, Jane Doe, 1980. Throughout the years, the lady in the box became a local legend. Teenagers would dare one another to visit her grave in the wee hours of the morning, and even a compassionate stranger started leaving flowers for her, which actually sparked a little bit of an investigation because they hoped that it was a guilty killer coming to leave Flowers, and instead it just turned out to be a very kind Samaritan who had another loved one buried in the cemetery and felt a lot of sadness and empathy for this unnamed woman who had clearly met a terrible end. Officer Bartley, a crime scene technician who had helped process the remains, was haunted by the lack of identification. An open case always haunts you, for lack of a better word. He said, you try to pride yourself that you're better than the average bear, so to speak, that you're going to get your man. And if you don't, it eats at you. Not bad, but it gnaws.
0: I can't imagine. All of the documentaries that I've watched where it's a, either a case that took a long time to figure out or a cold case, the detectives are always like,
1: it always just eats them at the core. It does. And, you know, until you said that, it didn't even occur to me because I think it's been so many years since I listened to it. But I made you listen to Bear Brook, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yes. So, guys, that's a really amazing, like, longer-form podcast about a similar situation where bodies were located and they were trying desperately to find out who these people were. That was the beginning of the DNA processing. Yeah, like the 23andMe and opting in to allowing your results to be shared with law enforcement. And it gets solved during the podcast, which is so cool. And so if you guys haven't, I'm sure you have. But if you haven't, definitely check that one out. We're happy to give that recommendation. Yeah, so it it is. It's very haunting. And you know that there's a family out there that's looking for this person. And that's the part that breaks your heart is that you want to... There's never real like closure or peace when something like this happens to someone you love but at least you know where to visit them. At least you don't wonder like where in the world they are. And it would gnaw at him for over 20 years, but eventually Officer Bartley and the world would know the identity of the lady in the box and the cruel monster who put her there. Unfortunately, it would take the disappearance of another bright and beautiful woman to shed light on the cold-blooded killer who may have had even more victims to his name. Authorities and loved ones would work tirelessly to put this individual away before he could strike again for there was a new wife out there years later when they already knew that two wives had disappeared and it was a race against time to protect her. Oh my God. Stress level a million. So this is also the story of a sister and a daughter who fought hard for their missing loved one and still do to this day. It is because of their love and determination that some semblance of justice has been delivered and it is their faith that inspires others who have lost those that they care about as well. So 11 years later in 1991, worlds away in a small mountain resort in the Poconos of Pennsylvania a couple's attempt at saving their still young marriage was off to a rocky start. So these people aren't particularly young, but they're marriages. They've only been married for about a year. And it was 49-year-old Betty Fran Gladden-Smith, who went by Fran, and her 40-year-old husband, John David Smith. And yeah, they just had had a rough first year of marriage. And this was an attempt to do kind of a belated honeymoon, which they had never had. So they had a suite that was one of those like really delightfully cheesy types of suites that has like a heart-shaped hot tub in the room. Yeah. What what are you calling cheesy? I'm not understanding. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I think it's cheesy, but I love it. Like I would look for a place like this. You know, other rooms had like the martini glass hot tubs. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Anyways, so they, that <laughs> was where they were staying. And they had been taking a soak in the hot tub when and watching some TV and the TV went out. So this is already isn't great that the TV went out. So what happened was they ended up calling for a TV repairman or just like, you know, the handyman to come up and help them out. so when the repairman knocked on the door, pretty petite Fran ended up slipping out of the tub to answer it. And she was really really little and cute. She was five to barely a hundred pounds with just like a pile of long blonde hair. She looked a lot younger than 49, especially for this era of time. You know, we're talking 91. It wasn't a lot of like J-Lo's out there at this point. Her husband was a geeky, thin man with a freckled face and large eyes. He, in some of his younger pictures, looks like a little bit like a, a redheaded Steve Buscemi. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so they're physically not exactly what you would imagine them being with the other person. Yes. They had met at work in Florida and she had worked in reception. She was kind of the new girl at that time. She had moved to Florida to help her mother out. And he was immediately attracted to her. He was an engineer. Fran was gorgeous, like I said. She'd even done some modeling in her early years. So it was totally no surprise that John was interested in her. But what Fran saw in John was a little bit harder to pin down. She had been raised all around the world as a military brat, and she had developed amazing social skills. She just was one of those people that got along with everybody. And she did have a fondness for a man in uniform. She had married three times before John. The first, which was a disaster because she was only 17 years old. But her first two marriages had produced three incredible children. She had sons, Rod and Todd, and a daughter named Deanna, who everyone called Dee Dee. Fran was an absolutely wonderful mother who loved her children fiercely, but she wasn't apparently always the easiest wife. So great mom, wasn't as committed to her husband's. And and it's not because there was any like infidelity. It was more that she had a type of temperament where I actually very much relate to it. Andy, it's exactly my temperament, which is where you flare up about little things, but you're over it really fast. Yep. And she couldn't hold a grudge to save her life. She would never hold a grudge. So she was always confused when people couldn't get over her flare-ups. She was like, wait, we moved on. Everything's fine. Why
0: are you so mad? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you can't be friends with people then who don't understand your temperament you have to be able to understand why someone else would be put off
1: who may not know you as well. So it just sounded like it wasn't anything big. It wasn't like infidelity. It was just like small things that would piss her off and then they would become like a running thing. And she just really couldn't understand why people couldn't just move on after she's had her say. She also was just like a total, like she's tiny, but she is fierce. Oh my goodness. So one of her sons was an airborne army ranger. And in 1989, he was hit by a bullet in Panama. So he had been first airlifted to Atlanta and she was trying to figure out whether she should go to Atlanta to be by his side. And then they said, no, we're transferring him to Florida. So she was like waiting to hear. And then when they finally told her where to go in Florida, she beelined it for the airport. But the flight that she needed to get on was getting overbooked essentially, was that there wasn't many spaces. So Michael Fleeman recounted the story from her daughter Deanna saying that there was a shortage of seats Deanna said and a gentleman who obviously felt he had much more important business cut in front of her in line and he was a lot bigger than her my mother was only five two and she weighed maybe 90 pounds he was well over six foot four and very big and when he cut in front of her in line she just reached up knocked the hat off his head grabbed him by the shoulders and pushed him out of the way and said, I've got someplace that I have to be. My son has been shot. You just move out of the way. I can go through you or around you and it doesn't take near as much time to go through you.
0: Obsessed, obsessed. Right? (laughs) Obsessed. Also, how about we just address the fact that he caught in front of her? Yeah, rude. Rude.
1: (laughs) Super rude, yeah. And uh, not surprisingly, Fran got her way and thankfully her son was A-OK. Okay. So yeah, family was everything to Fran. Like I said, she had moved to Florida where she eventually met her fourth husband, John Smith, to care for her mother. And she was also at that point helping to raise her six-year-old granddaughter because there was, I guess, some like academic program or good scholarship program in Florida at the time. And Deanna and her children were living in Texas. So the plan was to send her daughter first to get to take advantage of this program and then maybe her son later. But she loved it. She loved being a very hands-on grandmother. So she was in her late 40s, of course, when she met John. And she had traditionally had these marriages and relationships that were very passionate, but not very stable. So she was looking for something different and stable. And she originally turned him down. He came out after her pretty hard. I mean, he was gunning for her. He asked her out several times before she said yes. But eventually, she kind of liked that he was persistent. She liked that he was really, really smart. He told Fran and her family that he had graduated from Ohio State University with a degree in aeronautical engineering. Go back, guys. Well, he started there. That turned out to be a lie. He never got his degree. Uh huh. Regardless of whether he actually got his degree, which he had not, he was clearly bright and he boasted, I also do not know if this is true because it turns out John had a bit of a problem with lying, that he made $120,000, which is good in just about any era of history, but that's more like $270,000 in today's money. Yeah, that's a real good living. It's a real good living. So that was exciting for her that he was so stable. He was so devoted to her. He had never been married before. He said that he was a lifelong Mennonite bachelor. That's how he had been raised. He said, unfortunately, he didn't really get along with his family, which is why he was especially drawn to Fran because she had such a close knit family and in such a warm, welcoming family. John was not Fran's usual cup of tea by any stretch of the imagination. And coworkers described him as an almost caricature of a man. They said that his clothes were too bold. They were like very bright, multicolored, and out of style. He was kind of a little bit of a braggadocious type guy, hence, like bragging about his salary. They said he just talked a little bit too loud. He was just in general too much. When people, though, tried to discount him or say, like, that's weird that you guys are hitting it off or whatever, that actually just made Fran like him more. Because what people didn't know about Fran is that, yes, she was attracted to, like, macho military-type men, but she also had a weakness for an underdog. So the fact that he was smart and people seemed to, like, not completely understand him all the time actually worked more in his favor with her personality. She also did like how single-mindedly he pursued her. I think everyone wants to feel chosen, And I think things are changing, but when you are a historically beautiful woman and you're getting up there in years, maybe you don't feel pursued as much as you used to. Yep. And I don't know if that was specifically the case here, but it was like nice. It was nice to have that attention rather than too intense at that point. And she ended up getting married to John on a Destin, Florida beach after only two months of dating in May of 1990. Jesse, that's worse than you. <laughs> it is. It is. Love,
0: murder, a red flag on the field here. Whoa. I think that could be a consistent red flag if it's less than your limit. Definitely.
1: Definitely. I mean, honestly, it's probably like less than a year. Like from the moment you meet to marriage is probably yeah, a red it, flag. It's
0: good to have one calendar year. You get to work through all the seasons together, you get to
1: like learn the nuances. Yes. Like, it's crazy to me that I hadn't experienced a holiday season with my husband until he was already my husband. Considering
0: you guys and the holidays. I like, know. That what if he been had been... Tragic.
1: What if one of us was really scroogey and, like, didn't want to put up decorations? It would have been terrible. I know. So, yeah, the the suddenness of the marriage was a shock to Fran's family. But her sister, Sherry, and daughter, Deanna, as well as really most of the rest of her family, were happy for her because she did seem very happy. She loved his intelligence. She loved talking to him. She really thought that this was this was it forever. This was the person she was going to end her life with someday. And John was actually really good with children. He was such a good, like, pseudo-grandfather to her grandchild. Everyone was, like pleasantly surprised with the ease he had with her family. The only person who was not a fan was Fran's mother, who had a gut instinct that something was not quite right about her daughter's new husband. Gotta trust her. I gotta trust the mom. We gotta trust your gut. We gotta get trust your mama. Always. Always. Mother's intuition. So John traveled a lot for work, which Fran didn't love, but she was so accustomed to being independent that it wasn't much of a hardship for her because she had mostly raised her children as a single mother. She had been hardworking and independent her whole life. So it wasn't terrible. It wasn't like they were codependent at that point. So eventually she quit her job with John's support so that she could take care of her granddaughter full time. And things were pretty smooth sailing until about nine months in when John stunned Fran with divorce papers completely out of the blue. Yeah, that's weird. Very, very weird. She had no idea what was going on. In fact, the person, you know, the process server who gave her the papers had to sit with her for like an hour while she cried because she was so hysterical. She was so shocked. She had no idea what was going on. And so she called John at work to be like, you left this morning like, bye, babe, have a nice day. And then I get these papers. What the hell? And he was like, yeah, that was a mistake. I'm sorry. I'll be home later. We'll, we'll work it out. And it seemed like there was no resolution about why it had happened. In February of 1991, he filed to dismiss the divorce proceedings. So he just said that was a mistake. I'm sorry. And then filed to dismiss them so that it like it never happened. Let me get out my eraser. <laughs> oopsies, I tried to divorce you. So that's another big red flag, I would say. The surprise divorce for no reason. And then I think within only a month or two after that, it wasn't really clear if he had had a contract with the company they were working at and the contract was not renewed or if he was just straight up laid off. But either way, he had to find a new job. And she wanted to remain in Florida or go back to Texas where she had been living and where her daughter still lived. But he said he could not find anything in Florida or in Texas. He said that the only positions that were open to him were in Connecticut, New Jersey, or upstate New York. So she's like, that's kind of far away. But at that point, he was only the breadwinner completely. And she was determined to make this marriage work. So he told her that he had a beach house in Connecticut that she didn't know anything about. So he's like, well, if we go to Connecticut, maybe we can just live in my house there. And she's like, wow why didn't I know you had a house in Connecticut? And why don't we absolutely take the Connecticut job so that we can move into a nice house rather than they were looking at their budget and it made sense they were going to get a condo otherwise. And he said, oh, well, you know, my sister is living there, my sister Kathy, and she takes care of my dogs. And I don't really want to evict her, but I kind of don't want to live with her either. So I don't think we should do that. And the New Jersey job is better anyway. She had never heard of this sister, Kathy. So she's like, okay, you have a house I've never heard about and now a surprise sister I've never heard about and dogs I've never heard about. What is going on? Who has dogs in like other states? So he said that he was living in Connecticut when he got the contract or the job in Florida and he had just moved down there because it was such good money and now the contract was up.
0: So you're not going to bring your dog? Like,
1: yeah, it's very strange.
0: Like, I have a cat, and I would bring my cat. Like, a dog is so much more of, like, a travel companion. He was also there for two
1: years. I mean, that's not yeah. like, I'm going to Europe, like, I'm and like they're going to be stuck in quarantine uh, for so long, it's not worth bringing them. <laughs> no, and it's Florida. Yeah. So there was a lot of unanswered questions about that. And eventually, he decided to take the job in New Jersey. And over Memorial Weekend 1991, Fran left her family and Florida And moved in with John in a two-bedroom condo in Princeton, New Jersey. And this is where the real issues began. Number one, she has all of this new distrust because he had given her all this new information that was wild and she had never heard about. So she's still not sure why they're living in a condo when they could have potentially taken the other job and lived in his house. The other thing is, is that he they're on the East Coast now. They're relatively close by. It's a driving distance, maybe an overnight stay. But still, why wasn't he taking her to see the house? And why wasn't he introducing her to his sister? Because she doesn't exist. <laughs> he also <laughs> would frequently go back to the house in Connecticut and not bring her. He would say, well, I have to do this maintenance project. I have to fix the roof. But yeah, I don't want you to be bored while I'm there. And she's like, okay, so I'll just be bored here alone without you? But it was like a very big sticking point for them. And she didn't really know how much to push. Sherry and daughter Deanna were both very concerned about this, whether there really was a house, whether this sister existed, whether it was another woman who wasn't his sister, but, you know, double lifestyle. And they very much encouraged her to find out and do some digging on her own. But she said that trust and trust issues had, absence of trust really, had ruined her previous three marriages. And she wasn't going to let it do that to her this time because she had been overly snoopy in the past. And this time she needed to trust because either the marriage was going to work out or it wasn't. But her like digging in and prying wasn't going to make it go any smoother is basically what she said. Which is in general, I think, a good call. But this one with so many red flags, I think you got to push just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably completely
0: against her nature as well.
1: Yeah. I also just think that she had decided that this was it. This was the last time she was going to get married and she was going to do everything she could to make this one work. And that meant taking a step back and trying to be more mature about situations. But John seemed kind of hell-bent on ruining the marriage himself. In August of 1991, he took off in anger and just completely disappeared because Fran was getting her wedding ring replaced. So he, without asking her, noticed that she wasn't wearing her wedding band. And it was because she had broken it. She had, like, cracked it. And so she brought it to a jewelry store and just didn't even mention it because she knew she was getting it fixed and she didn't think it was a big deal. Well, without asking her, he apparently took off and left her a note that said, when you decide to start wearing your wedding band again, I'll come home. I don't have my wedding band right now. Could you imagine if Dan did that? (laughs) Well, it's completely ludicrous. I also, I only wear my engagement ring because I don't have a wedding band that really goes with it. Like both times I was married, like one ring doesn't fit. It fits like on my other hand and the other one like just doesn't go because I didn't think about these things. Did not think about these things when I was getting married at all. So I just wear my engagement ring and my father-in-law asked me the other day, I think it was like not even the other day, but like a year ago or something. He was like, so are you ever gonna get a wedding band? And I was like, no. Like, I think engagement ring's good enough. I feel pretty darn married. (laughs) It's been nine years. So funny. So Sherry describes in her book an almost sixth sense that she and Fran shared. It's kind of like, you know, how twins describe how they can understand or just know psychically when something is wrong in their twin's life. So even though the girls were four and a half years apart, they had that connection. And she talks about different occasions while they were growing up that they could tell, like, it was a different time that Fran could tell that she broke her arm and vice versa. There was like all these different occasions. And so this was another moment where it was early August that she felt that sensation and she tried to get a hold of Fran, and Fran ended up calling her back, collect, and she was in hysterics. Not only was John gone, this is still for the wedding ring thing, he had taken all of his belongings, he had taken the TV, he had taken the radio. It seemed like he was genuinely gone. And she didn't have any money. So she hadn't been working for a while at this point because he told her not to work, because I think he liked to exert that control. And he never gave her access to a joint checking account. He never gave her a credit card. So he would literally give her cash like once a day or once a week or when she said she was going grocery shopping. And he would just like put a $50 bill down for her and never give her access to their money at all. So Sherry was really shocked by this because otherwise Fran was a very strong, independent woman. She'd worked her whole life and she'd raised three kids essentially by herself. Yep. So how did she get herself into this situation is what Sherry was basically saying to her sister is, you're not naive. What are you doing? I'm going to wire you some money and we're going to get you out of there and we're going to get you back into Florida. We're going to get you back with our family and and we got to move forward about this. But just like the previous scenario, she ended up talking to John and explaining to him that her ring was just getting fixed And he was like, oh, okay. well, then I guess I'll come home. And at that point, Sherry was like, well, what changes are you going to make? Because if you decide to take him back after he pulled that stunt and the other divorce stunt, then where does this end? You have to tell him you need access to a joint checking account. You need your own credit card. You need to find out who the woman living in the house is. And she agreed to all of that except for the woman in the house. She's like, I'm not going to pry there, but you're absolutely correct that I do need to handle my own finances. And to that end, I need, I need my own finances. So she decided she was going to get a job. Fran was isolated from all of those she loved. She had no control of anything in the relationship. So she decided to get this secretarial position so she could, again become independent. And she was very motivated to keep this marriage going. But she, this whole scary situation had made her realize that she needed to protect herself and she needed to prepare for maybe an eventual future where they did part ways or she was forced to leave him because he's emotionally abusive. What he's doing is emotionally abusive, withholding and disappearing and controlling. I mean, it's, all bad news. Million. I mean, this is this could be called the sea of red flags this episode.
0: Yeah. If you're ever with someone who doesn't want you to have your own independence,
1: run. Very bad. And has purposely isolated her from her entire support network. Could he really not find any jobs anywhere in Florida or Texas near people she loved? They had to do this. It seems. Apparently that OSU degree didn't get him very far, huh? (laughs) Apparently not, that he can't find his own place. And it'll make sense why later when we find out more about the woman who lives in the house in Connecticut. I mean, think about it. He said upstate New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, all three places where it's not super easy to get to because he wouldn't want it to be like in the same town, but he can drive a distance to go back to this house in Connecticut.
0: Yeah, you used to drive to Connecticut to go to the grocery store.
1: I did. I used to drive from New York to Connecticut to go to the grocery store. Yeah. New England is, is smaller. It's a lot smaller than California and out west. So she's now like really ready to rock. And so she goes out, she gets a job. She ends up getting a job at a real estate appraisal company. And John can tell that she's starting to pull away, or at least he thinks she is just based on her trying to exert some independence. And he really wants her not to leave, which is confounding because of his behavior that seems to suggest otherwise. But he tries to make good on all of the problems they've been having by taking her on a belated honeymoon to the Poconos. So we're back to Labor Day weekend 1991 and Fran got out of the hot tub to let the TV repairman in when she slipped on the wet tile, fell and broke her hip. Fran had osteoporosis, so it was even easier for her to break her bones. Yeah. So that not only ruined their trip, but it also extended the time that she would be out of work and made her even more dependent and isolated because she couldn't even leave this apartment. Their condo, unfortunately, was a three floor walk up. Whoa. Mm -hmm. A third floor walk up. This was not a great time. She was not having a good time in this marriage. Things were questionable. She also was just definitely not the type of person that could just lie around and be idle. Like personally, I could just read a bunch of books and sit in bed for all day. No, (laughs) You could not. (laughs) No. You absolutely could not. And neither could Fran. So she was talking on the phone to Deanna a lot. She asked Deanna to send her some patterns for kids' clothes, and she was making a ton of kids' clothes. She, would, she was still in a lot of pain, but she could sit at her sewing machine for like 20 minutes at a time before she had to take a rest. So she was doing that, and Deanna was chatting with her on Saturday, September 28th, 1991. She said that she was excited because she was feeling well enough to leave the house Finally. And John had told her that he was going to take her on an excursion to go and buy her grandson, Jared, a birthday present and then go out to dinner afterwards. And she explained the plan in detail to Deanna, saying that he was going to hold her crutches and then she was going to basically lower herself down three flights of stairs, poor thing, like on her like hands and butt, essentially, little by little to get down there. Because that is how social she was and how desperate she was to have... This excursion because she had been cooped up alone for the most part for the better part of a month. Yep. So while Deanna's on the phone talking about this plan, she hears John come home, and John, she goes, "Wait, what's, what's that? What are you What are you doing?" And he said that he already bought the present for her grandson. So he's like, "Well, now we don't need to leave because I already got the present for your grandson. I'm a guy. I know what he's going to like better anyway." And I also have to run back to the office now. So I can't really take you anyway. And Fran was like, wait a minute. Uh, you are not going back to the office. It's Saturday. You already work all of the time. And this was supposed to be my one big day out finally. So at that point, I'm so mad. she's mad. But Deanna said she sounded very controlled about it, that she was not like raging at him. She was just like, Hey, we've got to talk about this. This was supposed to be my special time. So you're not going to the office. We're going to work this out. And then she told Deanna that she loved her. And she said, everything's going to be fine. I'll call you Monday. Okay. But Deanna did not hear from her mother that Monday. And she actually never heard from her ever again.
0: I figured you were going to say that.
1: When Monday came around, Deanna didn't think so much about it at the beginning. You know, it's one day. And at that point, Sherry's sixth sister sense was kicking in. So she is trying to reach Fran. They both tried all day Tuesday, no avail. When they both called all Wednesday morning and there was also no answer and there's nowhere else she could be. She is homebound because of her hip. So the fact that she's not answering her landline when they're calling and calling and calling is very disconcerting. So Deanna was not close to John. It's not that they had a bad relationship. It's just that, you know, he still was a fairly new husband and she lived in Texas. So they weren't spending all that much time together, but she did have his work phone number that her mother had given him. So she calls him at work and immediately she knows something is very, very wrong because she says, Hey, I'm trying to get a hold of my mom. And he goes, Oh, I thought she was with you. And that was the moment that she said there was a pit formed in her stomach (sighs) that she knew that there was something very wrong here. Because her mother would have communicated any travel plans, but also there's no way her mother, with her broken hip, could have left on her own. She couldn't have gotten down three flights of stairs with bags and crutches. She didn't take her car, she finds out from him that her car is there. He said that she had lost her key and it didn't really matter anyways because she wasn't driving clearly. But even if she had taken her car, she wouldn't be able to drive it with her hip. So she's like, John, you're saying that she left. To come see me. But you're not even concerned about her trying to get through an airport, get to the airport with her hip. Like, that's crazy talk. And he's like, well, I just assumed that she took the bus. There's like a bus stop a couple of blocks down. And she's like, okay. So she crutched to take a bus to the airport? What are you talking about? He did say that there was a note. He said that she left a note and it said, John, I've gone... It says, like, I was, I'm going away for a few days. Don't forget to feed the fish. Hmm. Which was very strange because they also had a dog. And so the prioritization of the dog over the fish was, I mean, the fish over the dog. It was just altogether very strange, especially when she said, I want to see this note. And he said, oh, I, I already threw it away. Oh, my God.
0: Of course he did. Yeah.
1: That Friday, Deanna and Sherry threatened to fly out and go to the police because She had apparently gone missing sometime Sunday, it sounded like, at least according to John. And he had not yet filled out a police report by Friday. So they said, we're going to get our asses on planes and come out there and do it for ourselves if you don't do it immediately. Yes. So he did. So he went and he filed a report on October 4th, 1991, after work, saying that she had left the note, like I said, that he had already conveniently crumpled up and thrown out and that he believed that she had gone to Texas or Florida to visit family. He said that he knew she was gone because she had taken two yellow suitcases and some clothes were missing from the home. He told the officer who was taking the report that they had zero relationship issues. They were completely happy. He had no reason to think that she was having an affair or trying to leave the marriage So he hadn't really been worried about it because she was so close to her family and he assumed that's where she was going to visit. He also told them that he did not have a recent photo of his wife for the missing persons poster because she was camera shy. Deanna and Cherry are already like aghast at the fact that he's saying he wasn't worried about her, that she just would go off on her own with a broken hip. But then also, she had been a model. She's a very attractive woman. She definitely was not afraid of the camera. That is not an issue that she had.
0: I mean, in 1991, hip surgery is like not even close to what it is now. And it's still a massive recovery time.
1: It is gnarly. And she has osteoporosis, which complicates the issue. So it's pretty clear to the police that something is wrong here. A neighbor reported seeing Fran could not really remember if it was that Saturday or the Saturday before. But in any case, they said that they saw her trying to basically like hobble down the stairs and that she was pale. She looked sickly and she had a bruise on her face.
0: What? I don't think that's usually a result of a hip surgery.
1: No. So the police also discovered the divorce filing and retraction, which would certainly be evidence that there were more problems in the relationship than John had copped to. Because you can't say we had absolutely zero relationship issues. We were so happy when there was divorce filing at some point. Shot himself in the foot in that one. He did. They asked John to take a polygraph and he failed it miserably. It's really funny, actually, that he could not get it together to pass this polygraph, even as a a liar, because otherwise, they said in interrogations and interviews, he was cool as a cucumber. They said that they could interrogate him for hours. At one point later on, we're going to talk about a 12-hour interrogation where he neither took off his coat, asked for a glass of water, ate any food, or went to the bathroom for 12 hours. So he didn't reveal much in this interview about Fran's disappearance, but very soon the police did discover the mystery woman living in his Milford, Connecticut house. He had tried to say, yes, I own a house there and my sister Kathy lives there. So the police went to this address and they did not find a woman named Kathy, and they certainly did not find John Smith's sister because he did not have one. They instead found a 39-year-old woman named Sheila who had been dating John for eight years. Excuse me? So she had worked in HR. They had met at a company they worked at. They had gotten together, and they had been living together for a little while When John decided or found, I don't know, I still don't know why he went down to Florida to take a job in Florida and he wanted her to go with him. But when she visited, she decided that her whole family and her whole life was in Connecticut and she didn't really want to go. And he didn't want to end the relationship at that point. So he said, you know, it's just going to be for a couple of years. You stay living in the house in Connecticut. You keep the dogs and I'll come back and visit whenever I can. So she's the dogs. She's the dogs and she's the sister, question mark? Gross. Gross. I mean, it's gross that that's your like first thing. You wouldn't be like, oh, I'm renting the house out to someone. I know, but he's just a liar. He's, and he's matter. not a good liar, too, because that would make more sense. You'd be like, well, I don't want to bother the tenant. And also, it wouldn't be important to you to meet a tenant. It is kind of important to meet your husband's sister. So she was shocked about it being such a big deal. The police had to come to her and also that they were potentially suggesting that he had had something to do with it. But she said it wasn't completely out of the blue because by the time they approached her, this was, I think, January 3rd. And he had said to her on December 17th of the previous year when he was just leaving, he was just leaving in the morning to go back to Princeton. And he said, oh, by the way, I'm married and my wife is missing. Okay, talk to you later, and just took off. Yeah. So she kind of knew something was coming and he did eventually try to to explain it to her as they were on a break when he was in Florida because she didn't want to move down there and he met somebody and got married and it had been a very, very short marriage. It had not really lasted that long. So that's why it didn't matter. And when he moved back up, things were already on the rocks and then she took off and now the police were looking at him, even though obviously he had nothing to do with it.
0: 'Cause he got back with Sheila when he came back to the northeast. Yes. Right.
1: And that's also where he had yeah. been on all of his so called business trips. He'd actually been flying back to Connecticut to be with her.
0: Dude, clean up your mess. It's really messy.
1: Super messy. The whole double life thing. I don't know why anyone would want to pull this off or try to pull it off. Like try to pull it off. That's the key. It never does. They never pull it off. But also, even if it does, like, I think it would sound stressful like supporting like one entire family all by myself. Could you imagine like two, like two multiple real families with children, like the things that you read about?
0: It's some sort of narcissistic fulfillment prophecy thing that never ends well. Like it never ends well. Yeah. And they
1: can't even just have a fling. They have to have like a whole other family.
0: And like a golden
1: retriever. (laughs)
0: Oh my God. Messy.
1: Yeah. So this was all obviously very distressing to her. She agreed to help the police. She said, okay, it's definitely over with me and him. It seems like it was a little on and again, off again anyway, but she had had no idea, obviously, about Fran. And she said that she would record conversations with him or do anything that they needed to do in order to find out if he had something to do with his wife's disappearance. The other thing that she said that was very interesting, and the police had not known this, was that she shouldn't be surprised that he lied about his marital status because this was not the first time that he had lied about it. She said at one point that she had been, I think, tidying up his office or doing something, cleaning, and she had found an old resume. And I don't know why this would be on a resume, but it was. Maybe it was like an application or something. Under if he was married, it said, divorced, no children. And he had told her he had never been married before. And this is prior to Fran. So she's like, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised. This is actually his second wife. He told me that he was married when he was really, really young. He was basically a teenager when he got married. He was 19. And they hadn't been married very long at all before they divorced. And he didn't really like tell me much beyond that. And so they're like, okay, so we have one wife That he had a long time ago that he didn't talk about and didn't reveal. And now we have a second wife he didn't who's also, so she's missing. This is getting really sketchy. She also said that the last thing we know about really where Fran was, was when Deanna talked to her. That's the last conversation that we are sure that she had and she was definitely alive. And Sheila said that she spent Sunday, I think it was like afternoon evening with John So that means somewhere between that Saturday morning, I think Texas time, maybe afternoon New Jersey time, and the following afternoon in Connecticut, it seems likely that that was the time window in which he did something to Fran. And now they're thinking, my gosh, she could be anywhere from Princeton, New Jersey to Milford or beyond because he had a considerable amount of time to get rid of a body.
0: Yeah, of course. Casual Sunday, you know?
1: At this point, Sherry and Deanna do not trust anything John's saying. They don't care that he finally filed a police report. They're going to New Jersey to figure it out. So they went straight to the apartment. Because right now, he's still playing it off as, I don't know, guys. I thought she was with you. Of course I didn't do anything. I love her. I love her so much. And they're like, well, we're going to come over. And we want to look around. And we want to take some of her things. We want... To figure out what happened so they go to do that and the first thing they find out is that they're searching the whole place while he's at work and they find the yellow suitcases he claimed that she took so now he's saying she left and he's lying about these suitcases that they uncovered so they find those it
0: sucks they weren't just like black samsonite you know yeah it's it's (laughs) like bright yellow bright yellow
1: very specific And they decide also to speak with the police while they're there because they want to get the down low about everything that's going on, offer them support and as much information as possible, anything that they can do to help bring Fran home. So they tell Deanna and Sherry about the fact that he had this double life, that he had a longtime girlfriend for years during the time he was married. They had no idea. So that's, the first huge revelation. And the second was that that person had mentioned that he had also been previously married, which he has never talked about before, ever. He had told everyone in the family that this was his first marriage. So now they're finding out that there was a live-in girlfriend and a previous marriage. And the police, you know, now were able to look it up. And they said, yes, he was married a long time ago to a woman named Janice Hartman. Now, Sherry's an incredible woman, and she's like a full-blown civilian detective. Like, at the beginning of this, like, I can't even tell you how much time, energy, money she has devoted her life to finding Fran and also helping other families that have missing persons as a loved one. And she has become quite the detective herself. So she called Sheila. She talked to Sheila about their entire relationship. Sheila had no idea about her sister. She got as much information about Janice as she possibly could, including where they believed they lived, where John grew up, because she didn't really know that, which was in Ohio. So she literally went through the phone book, like went through Ohio yellow pages and called every Hartman in the yellow pages and would say, Hi, I'm Sherry. I'm looking for my sister. Are you related to a Janice Hartman who is married to a John Smith? I would do the same exact thing. Yes, you'd be so good at this. I know. And you would. You would absolutely never give up and you would leave no stone unturned. And that's exactly how Sherry is. So finally, after doing this for days, and Deanna was doing it with her as well, Sherry got a guy named Gary Hartman from Wadsworth, Ohio. On the phone. And he said that he did have a sister named Janice and that she had been married to John Smith. So Sherry said, Well, my sister is married to him as well, and she's missing. And so I'm trying to find out as much as I can about his life and what kind of guy he is to be married to. Is there any way you can connect me with your sister so I can talk to her? And Gary later would say that at that point, the hair stood up on the back of his neck. And he replied, my god, lady, you've got a problem. Because it turns out, shortly after divorcing John in 1974, Janice disappeared and no one ever saw her again.
0: There's no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to hair care. A product that works wonders for curls might make straight hair limp and greasy. I personally deal with a lot of tangles with my natural curls and really want to figure out a way to manage them. As you know, Jesse, I am such a fan of zero-maintenance hair, just wash and go, so I'm super excited to learn more about pros.
1: Yeah, I somehow have greasy roots at the same time I have these very dry, sad ends of my hair, and I've never been able to find anything that works for both until now. First, pros starts by asking about you as a person with their
0: in-depth consultation. Pros asked me really unexpected things like, what was my zip code so they could see the environmental effects on my hair, which we have quite a bit of in LA, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, slightly less so in the Hudson Valley of New York. (laughs) (laughs) Next, pros analyzed all my answers and determined what unique blend of ingredients should be in every product of my custom routine. Together, pros got all of my hair goals covered. So I got my custom shampoo and conditioner as well as a pre-shampoo hair mask that I absolutely never would have thought to order on my own. And now I'm obsessed with it. I have my eye on those hair supplements too to help with growth. So I'll probably go back and order those with our code today.
0: Yeah, I really did it up with the custom Andy shampoo and conditioner curl cream, and those root supplements. And I also added in a leave-in conditioner for my tangles because, you know, that's always a problem. But yeah, I love everything. They also sent me a cute little eye mask along
1: with the order for free. Did you get one of those? Oh, yeah, I did. I love it. Yeah. As a carbon neutral certified B Corp, Prose is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral.
0: If you're not 100% positive Prose is the best hair care that you've had, they will take the products back, no questions asked.
1: Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to Pros.com slash lovemurder. That's pros dot
0: slash lovemurder for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off.
1: Did you know one out of six couples struggle with infertility? That's a staggering statistic and one that most people don't know or aren't ready to talk about. In fact, it took me two years to get pregnant with my firstborn, but we need good data and information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and make the best decisions for ourselves and our futures.
0: That's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days.
1: You'll get insight into your hormone levels, your ovarian reserve, aka how many eggs you have compared to other women your age, and other important fertility factors. The results go deep into what every hormone means, and you can also download the results to review with your doctor for the next steps. Traditional testing
0: can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder, you can get $20 off your test.
1: Yeah, I definitely wish that I had known about this back in 2016, (laughs) 2017, for sure. If you want kids today or maybe one day in the future, clinically sound information about your body can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility
0: is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. That means your test will cost $179 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office.
1: Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. Modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. It's so
0: crazy that it's a brother and a sister connecting on this, mm-hmm. that she didn't accidentally call Janice's dad a parent or children. Like, yeah.
1: Sibling to sibling. Yeah. So it was immediately clear that this was no coincidence. So let's go back and talk about beautiful Janice Hartman. Janice was born on March 2nd. 1951. She was the third child of Betty and Neil Hartman. So she had two older brothers. And then it seemed like her parents went through a divorce and she had a younger sister who was 10 years younger later on. But you know, the divorce was not easy on the kids. The mom took the kids and she she raised them entirely on her own while working. And this really did teach Janice to value independence and self-reliance above all else. And she was also, sounds like, a real ballbuster, little tomboy who could run with her older brothers and not back down. Betty, her mom, said that she once got a call from a neighbor complaining that the neighbor's son was getting beat up. Ugh, which one is it? Asked Janice's mother, thinking it was one of her sons who was in trouble. Instead, the neighbor said it was eight-year-old Janice. She beat the crap out of him, Betty recalled years later. I had to punish her. Girls don't go around beating the crap out of boys, but it tickled me. I had to laugh.
0: Oh, my God, love. <laughs> I love that.
1: <laughs> so Janice grew into a free-spirited, rebellious teen, which was very of the time that she's growing up in. I mean, she think about it. She's born in 1951. So, I mean, the mid-60s, she's like a 15, 16-year-old, and we're going into the early 70s. It is like free love, great music. And... She was part of that. She was totally part of that world. She had a really pretty face. She was also petite. She was very strong-willed. Later on, her mother and brothers would say that they have no idea what made a 19-year-old Janice fall in love with a 19-year-old John Smith, who was even kind of geekier and skinnier back then. But they said that it was likely that he had a motorcycle. Oh, my God. So John had been born exactly one month after Janice on April 2nd, 1951 to Grace and Carl Smith. He was the eldest of two brothers and his parents separated pretty early after his brother. I think his brother was like a young child when they separated. Grace took the boys back to her hometown where she raised them with her parents. And she ended up literally buying the house two doors down from her parents and they were such a big part of the kids' upbringing that it was like they were parents themselves. They did so much babysitting and helping out, yeah, that they called their grandfather dad because he was their dad figure. John was described as skinny, awkward, but he really liked motorcycles and working on cars because his his grandfather ran a gas station in a garage, so he was very enmeshed in that world now, despite like running track and being relatively involved at high school. He was not a popular kid, but he wasn't also a not popular kid. He kind of was just one of those kids that didn't really fit in anywhere. He was a floater and he really wanted to be cool. That's what people said, that he tried to kind of like pull off like a James Dean thing. That's why he was like driving the motorcycle. He was always into really cool cars. He tried to do like the, you know, tight white shirt, like a leather jacket thing. But it just was not the right look for him. So it just, he just never quite made it work. And it seems like the only time maybe he did was when he pulled up in his motorcycle to a party and met Janice at what people believe was a high school graduation party. So he told her that he was heading to Ohio State in the fall to become an engineer. And that and the motorcycle seemed to be enough to get the pretty brunette to give him a shot. Within only a couple of months of knowing each other, John and Janice eloped, much to everyone's chagrin. So the Hartmans didn't like John because he was a big bullshitter, according to mom Betty, who had a nasty temper and a mouth, according to brother Gary. Gary told a story about how He had been staying at their house, and he started playing chess with John, and it should have just been a relaxing, brotherly game, and he completely lost his shit when Gary beat him and, like, kicked the board over and, like, screamed at him. Bad losers are the worst. The worst. Like, who even acts like that? I mean, I haven't since I was four. Seriously. (laughs) I did used to throw the Monopoly board at my brother, though. (laughs)
0: I outgrew it. But could you imagine doing it with your, like,
1: in-laws and brother-in-law? No, absolutely not. That's what I mean, as, like, an adult person. Yeah, they did not like him because of those reasons. And John's mother didn't approve just because she didn't want him to get married so young. He was supposed to be going to Ohio State, and she didn't really want his career and academic career derailed, essentially. Nonetheless, the young couple moved in together to Columbus, where John did attend engineering classes at OSU, but would end up dropping out before graduation. Janice was working at a gas station and single handedly keeping the couple afloat financially, which led to a lot of resentment. She wanted him very much to get a part time job and help out around the house. And it seemed like he refused or he just avoided the conversation. And Gary visited the couple around this time, and he said that John was getting increasingly domineering and controlling. Janice was very unhappy at this point. She was calling her husband an asshole to her friends and family, and it just did not seem like it was working out. And at the same thing, kind of like the Nose trip, when John realized that Janice was one foot out the door, he wanted to do a nice gesture to get back in her good graces, So he went with her mother and her sister and bought her this special watch that had emeralds on it because they were her favorite gemstone. And it was engraved with a J. It might have even been a J in emeralds, but it was something very specific to her and her taste. And she loved this watch and she absolutely never took it off. So that was like one of his last ditch romantic attempts at winning her back. But regardless of the fancy watch, the relationship was totally doomed. And soon she was ready to leave. But every time she mentioned it or tried to bring up a conversation about them not working out, he would get very abusive and he would tell her that if she did leave, he would find her and he would kill her. So sweet. So she was understandably upset about this and called her mom and said, he's threatening me. I'm a little scared. Good for her. And her mother said, You need to get a divorce and get back here as soon as possible. Just move in with me. I'll take care of you. Just get out of that situation. So, in July of 1974, only weeks after the death threat, Janice filed for divorce and the couple did file a legal separation agreement the next month. Good. Yes. So she moves back, but her mom at this point has a lot of house rules. She still had. you know, a 10 years younger daughter living there. And she wanted her to be home by 11. She wasn't allowed to drink or smoke while she was living under her roof, which of course Janice was like, yeah, no, I'm an adult. I've been living on my own for a while. I'm not going to have a curfew. And she ended up moving out and moving into her own place for the first time. She bought a car she was obsessed with. She finally, with her own money, bought herself a Mustang that she loved. And she got a new career, kind of a racy one, as a go-go dancer. Yes. Yes. It was really cute, too. It's funny because Gary talks about it in the book, about how his whole family was like, a go-go dancer? What does that mean? Like, is she taking off her clothes? What kind of dancer is this? But it was like a really nice place. Like, he went with his wife, and they had dinner and like watched her dance and she obviously kept her clothes on, but it's like, it was just like a cool sceny dance. It wasn't like something seedy. So she's doing that. And the only thing that kind of drove her family crazy was that she was kind of letting John hang out a little bit. Like they were still occasionally spending the night with each other. I think they were technically staying in the same trailer that he was in. He was showing up at her workplace And she even brought him home one night, and her mother was like, hey, aren't you guys getting a divorce? And they were laughing about it. They're like, yeah, we're going out to celebrate the divorce. Now, some couples can be amicable like that, but not usually after death threats have been made. No. So yeah, they were not happy about this. But on this one particular visit, which they believed happened probably in early November, she was just a little off. I mean, John was there, which was strange. She was telling them that she loved them and she was talking about Thanksgiving plans to see them. But then she told her sister that she was going to see her for her high school graduation. She's like, don't worry, I'll see you for your high school graduation. And the sister was only a freshman in high school. So she's like, I'm going to see you before my high school graduation. She's like, oh, I'll be there. Don't worry. So that was like a little strange. They didn't really like know what was going on in her life at this point. It seemed like she was having a lot of change. And to be honest, there was a lot of stuff going on in Janice's life in November of 1974. She, like I said, had bought herself the new Mustang. She was trying to live independently, but it sounded like she was going back to John occasionally. And she had met this other guy, Leonard, and it's kind of unclear... If this relationship was platonic, if it was like a casual dating thing, but he had bought her a gold crucifix that she wore around her neck that she apparently also liked the watch never took off and they had some sort of relationship. And so one night she was out, this was probably a shortly after when she visited home, she was out drinking with Leonard and they were getting totally like blitzed at this club and I do not know if she had been go-go dancing that night or not, but she ended up meeting this other group of people. And it sounded like it was a bunch of dudes and like maybe one other girl. And they were having a great time. They were having fun. They were like, do you want to keep this party going? We'll go back to one of the guys' houses. At one point when they're back there, people are drinking, they're doing drugs, and they ask her to dance. And she's a go-go dancer. So she says, sure. Sure. I'll dance for you. Like, you got to pay me because I'm a professional dancer, but sure. So they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll pay you. Like, let's put some music on. You get dancing. And then they're like, hey, how much to take off your shirt? And she's like, I'm only taking off my, my top if you guys all take off all your clothes or something. They're like, yeah, we agree. We'll totally do that or whatever. But now this comes from a police report. We are moving into trigger warning, heavy trigger warning here for sexual assault attempt and just assault, period. So she thinks that, you know, they're all partying. They're having a good time when the guys start getting handsy with her. And one of the guys ends up dragging her into a bedroom and attempting to rape her. But Janice is tough and she is fighting back, which is not to say that anyone who doesn't fight back is not tough. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. But she's fighting tooth and nail and she's like actually getting these guys off of her. And more guys are coming in the room. Then even Leonard comes in the room. And he later told her that they basically were like, we're going to hurt you. Or we're going to kill you if you don't like come in and like also try to rape her or something. It was just very confusing. This is chaotic. Everyone's doing drugs. Like This is coming from her uh, police report account later. So she manages to literally like fight these guys off. And then a guy comes in with a shotgun. And he says something along the lines of, there's an easy way out for narcs. And it is confusing about what this is referring to, because there's some speculation later that she was involved in being an informant about drugs, which is not proven. It could also just be like, they're going to have to let her go. And if he's threatening her not to tell that all of these guys tried to rape her. And assaulted her because she was obviously very injured during this fight where she was hit in the face. She was scratched. She has bruises. I mean, she's not in good shape. And another guy ran in and stopped him because he was holding the shotgun up at at her and said no. And then somebody else got her her clothes back. And, and you were like, you, you got to get out of here. You You go. And so she took off. And it was Leonard who took her to the police to file a report. Now, this is happening... On the early morning hours of November 10th, she reported the attempted rape and the assault. And then she went to a doctor to be treated with birth control pills and barbiturates. So, in the police report, she said she wasn't actually raped, but I don't know because that's how the doctor treated her was with some sort of form of birth control. Yeah. Only four days after that, Janice and John's divorce was finalized. She was broken and beaten and she had escaped rape and that horrific experience at that house as well as her now ex-husband. At least she thought so. Sadly, Janice Hartman went missing directly after her divorce was finalized. Janice's mother, Betty, was notified when Janice failed to show up for court to testify against somebody else on an unrelated drug charge.
0: Oh, my God. But we
1: don't know if that's true because when detectives in 1991 look back at this situation, there's no record that she was supposed to appear in court at all.
0: So who called?
1: That's what they don't know. They don't know whether it was a police officer or somebody impersonating a police officer. Just giving her a tip-off that her daughter was missing. Yep. I mean, it, and it I think she would have recognized John's voice, I would think. So I don't know who it could have been if it wasn't actually a legitimate thing.
0: It seems like he loves talking about himself, so I think she would have recognized his voice <laughs> Yeah,
1: too. Yeah, so that's the big mystery is we do not know whether she actually was planning on testifying and whether she was going to be an informant. There was at least one person that recalled that she said that maybe she was going to tell somebody about some drug thing, and then she'd have to dip, like she'd have to leave or something. There's a potential for that in this situation. But the thing that's strange is if she dipped, there was no way she was going to leave her Mustang. It was her baby. It was her prized possession. And she never even let anyone else drive it. And the person who had it was John. John had her Mustang. Come on. Yep. So the police interviewed and investigated the men who had assaulted her but they all had alibis. It was total dead ends. There was no way, at least they believed that they could have anything to do with this. And despite Betty's desperate attempts to keep attention on her daughter's case, it did eventually go cold. Here's what Betty said, according to uh, Michael Fleeman's book. I couldn't sleep for weeks. So sad. I had nightmares. I even dreamt she was in a ditch. I woke up in a cold sweat hollering. It was a sad time. When the calls didn't get her anywhere, she wrote letters to anyone who would listen, the mayor, the U.S. Senators for Ohio, congressmen, the Missing Persons Bureau, the FBI. But nobody would help, she said. She spent $2,000 on a private investigator to look for Janice. The letters came back. They all said the same thing. There was nothing they could do. It seems likely that in conservative Wayne County police didn't care about a missing go-go dancer who had a history of drug use. They just did not care. Now, this was, of course, devastating to the Hartman family. Brother Gary said that when someone you love is missing, it is like a hole in your heart that never gets filled.
0: I could not even imagine. That's exactly what it seems like it would feel like. Well, that's
1: what we talked about a couple episodes ago. Dr. Jan Canty said how much empathy she has for people whose loved ones are missing for years and years because she only had to go through it for a few nights and it was terrible.
0: But she said it was horrible. Yeah. yeah.
1: Was absolutely horrible. So fast forward back to the 90s and now second wife Fran is missing too and Sherry informed the police about her fear that John killed both wives. So police start digging into Janice's disappearance and discover that John had been spotted at the club where Janice danced the very night she went missing. Was she working as well? She was working and he was pissed. He was pissed watching her dance. He didn't want to watch her dance. Their divorce had just been finalized. She had finally gotten away from him. Now, this gets very fuzzy because he eventually did file a police report, but he filed it not from his own home, He said that the last place she was seen was at this friend's house. So they interviewed the friend and the friend said, yeah, we were with John earlier that night. She didn't seem particularly scared of him, but that there was other witnesses that seemed said he was in a weird mood. And then she said, but he wasn't the last one with her. She drove off with another guy, this guy who had acne scars. In the 1990s, the same witness says, completely recanted that story. And she said, no guy was with Janice. I think that John threatened her because later they want the same witness to testify at a trial. And she says she can't because she's too scared. So it sounds to me like he may have coerced her to say that she saw Janice with another mystery man that she didn't know his name. Years later, she's maybe feeling safer And says, actually, there was no man, but she still doesn't point the finger at John. And then when push came to shove, she will not testify later on because she's too scared. So I think there was some coercion there. So at this point, the working theory is that John killed both women because they had left or they were planning on leaving him. So they got a search warrant for the condo that John shared with Fran. But there was no smoking gun piece of evidence. There was just more examples of John lying. He had said that she couldn't take her car because her keys were gone. And they found the keys in the house. They also found some pretty recent glamour-style photo shots. Like she had done a whole photo shoot for herself of Fran, which debunked John's statement that she was camera shy. So they bring him back in. And again... They interrogate him, this time for 12 hours. Like I said, he doesn't pee. He doesn't ask for water. It's completely insane. And they were trying everything. They had Sheila call him on recorded phone lines to try to get him to break. They really, really, really weren't getting anywhere. So they also sent letters out to every police department in Ohio trying to see if anyone was trying to find a Jane Doe's identity that would match Janice's description. By now, John's stepfather had passed and there was even some speculation that he had been involved with his stepfather's death. Could not be proved, but he was the last person to be seen with him. They'd been alone and apparently the man had been generally not in great health, but he shouldn't have passed away. So there was some suspicion that he had maybe had something to do with that, too, because he inherited a lot of money from his stepfather when he passed away. But they decide to go after his remaining family. So they are trying to get his mother, Grace, to talk. They're trying to get his brother, his younger brother, Michael, to say anything. And they had found out that some years before, Michael had warned some women to stay away from his brother, saying that he wasn't good to the women he dated or to his ex-wife. So that's why they were like, he knows something. If he said that, you don't just say that. But there's no hard evidence. Without finding Fran's body, they're at a total loss. So Fran's case grew pretty cold. Well, Janice's continued to be completely frozen And it looked like John was once again going to get away with murder. During the intervening years, John moved to Escondido, California, where he started a new job. He worked for a custom high-end car company called La Forza, and he had met another love interest. So with help from Fran's family, the FBI managed to locate where John was, because he had kind of slipped away from the local law enforcement. So they were on him like white on rice. And when they tracked him down, they found out that he had this new job and that also 47-year-old John was about to marry 49-year-old Diane Bertalan, who now is Diane Beasley. So the two eventually did wed and the stakes got a lot higher because now Sherry and her daughter Deanna know that there's another wife in the mix, that they have to figure out how to contact her. They have to tell her and warn her and the FBI has way, way smaller timeline than they thought because they know that it's you're particularly in danger when you are married to this guy. So at that point, the FBI pulled him into an interrogation. And they're like, look, you've been interrogated by local police. We're interrogating you now. It's going to be a different story here. And so he tried at the beginning to like, say that basically do the same thing. Like he was being cool as a cucumber. I don't know what you're talking about. But at some point they start talking about Sheila and things that Sheila told them and things that they're finding out and that they're going to talk to his brother. And he started freaking out at that point. It was completely counter to everything he had been acting like before. He's crying. He said, I... Don't want to lie anymore. I'm so tired of lying. I am tired of living this nightmare. And so he said he wants the nightmare to end. And so they're like, if you tell the truth, this nightmare can end. But then he clearly had second thoughts because then he's like, Well, I need a glass of water. I'm getting a really bad migraine headache. And then he said, Actually, can somebody get me some a leave? So they're trying to help him because they want to just keep him talking. And then he essentially faked a heart attack. So he starts saying, I'm having heart pains oh my God, something's wrong. I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm definitely having a heart attack. So they know he's lying, but they cannot deny him care. He's also not arrested at this point. So they can't stop him from leaving. And they certainly can't stop him from getting medical attention. No, Even though they know he's lying. So he leaves and they get nowhere after all. So they're desperate to get some physical evidence. And they go back to all of the files. They have everything that all of law enforcement did up until this point. And they, too, think that Michael is the weak link. So they're like, we're going to go back to Michael. So they go back to him. They push Michael really, really hard. And at first, again, he was resistant to helping. He was resistant to even talking to them. He did a preliminary interview with them where they're like, look, it's kind of like the amazing FBI agents that we talked about in the um, Sharon Marshall case when we did our Matt Birkbeck interview. Yeah, where They're just really amazing trained interrogators. And they pushed really hard on Michael saying, we know that there's something you're not telling us. These are people's lives. There are people that need to know where Fran and Janice are. This is hurting a lot of people, if you have any knowledge. a living person who's currently in danger. Yes, a living person who's currently in danger because he's married again. Yep. And after talking to his wife, Michael decided it was finally time to unburden himself. He had been keeping a horrifying secret for 25 years. Poor guy. Oof. His story began in 1974, shortly after Janice disappeared. Michael helped John move his belongings into storage in their grandparents' gas station garage. Many of the things that he was moving, he said, were women's clothes. So that was weird right away. He realized that it was likely Janice's stuff, but why hadn't Janice taken her clothes with her? A few days after he believed it was around Thanksgiving weekend, Michael was watching the Ohio State-Michigan college football game, which is a big deal in Ohio. It's the biggest deal. It's the biggest deal. And they had a family tradition of watching it all together. His uncle, his grandfather, like everybody in their family. Yeah. So the game is on and John is nowhere to be found, which is Bizarre. That's just not what you do when you live in this place. So he goes out to look for his brother and he finds John in his grandparents' garage putting together a plywood box. What? Yep. And he's like, What are you doing, man? The game's on. Also, like, you're making that really shitty. Also, it looks like kind of dumb, like just a weird box. You're gonna have to like nail that thing shut. Like, at least put like clasp on it or something make it a trunk like what are you doing and immediately John turned and was like he said he could not remember exactly what he said to him but it was derogatory it was angry it was upset confused it was like this outpouring of like get the hell out of here get away from me yeah only he also looked like he'd been crying wow so He was like, wow, I'm going to back the F off of this. Because then a Homer Simpson
0: into the bush. Yeah.
1: I'm out. (laughs) Also, the game's on. So why would I be in here being yelled at by my brother when I could go watch the game? So he goes back out. He watches the game for a little while. And then when the game ends, he comes back in and he's finishing the box. And then he sees him doing something very odd. He's like rolling up. The clothes, the women's clothes, in a very specific way, it almost looks like he's making a lining. Like it's not how you would pack clothes. It's not how you would like fold or even roll clothes and pack them away in something. He is lining the box with these clothes, like a coffin, like you would a coffin lining. But he asked him again about it. Again, he was told, like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So he's like, I didn't even think about this box for five more years. So his grandfather came to him in a panic five years later because he and a neighbor had been moving things around the gas station garage when they came upon the box and they were curious as to what it was. Oh my God. So the grandfather didn't know who put it there. So he was like, what's this? Why is this my garage? He had every reason to open it. He had basically crowbarred just a little bit of the top open just so they could see inside. It was clear from the smell that something was dead in the box. Oh my God. So his grandfather couldn't really see what was in the box and he kind of freaked out. So he went and he ran and got Michael who was living close by. Mm. Close enough that he could walk. And Michael came by and the neighbor said, oh, it's a big turtle. I think it's a dead turtle. He was like laughing about it. He's like, I don't know why somebody put a huge turtle in a box, but that's what it looks like to me. There's a dead turtle in there. And Michael looked... And he could see something that looked circular. He said it was something round, like two round things. But he certainly didn't think it looked like a turtle. He didn't know what it was, but he knew that he just had a really bad feeling about this. So he's like, you know what, guys? I'll take the dead turtle box to my house and I'll figure out how to get rid of it. But he knew it wasn't a turtle. So he was kind of curious. And he also recognized the box that John had been constructing five years ago, five years earlier. So he takes it back to his house and he ends up completely taking the nailed down top off with a crowbar and a hammer. So the whole lids off at this point. And that's when he realized they had kind of chipped away at like one of the sides. So they were looking at it from a weird angle. When he took the top off, he realized what he had been looking at that looked circular were bones that were cut off underneath the kneecap. That's why they had appeared like two oh my God. circles. Jesse. And he starts removing some of the clothing. He's like kind of poking around with a crowbar. And all of a sudden, he moves some cloth over and he sees the gray mummy-like face of Janice Hartman, his sister-in-law who had gone missing. She had been gone for 5 years at this point. He's sick to his stomach. So he's feeling really ill. He doesn't know what to do. He calls his grandfather and he's like it's not a turtle. It's not it's bad. It's really bad. It's I don't even know because the way he talked about it, it's almost like he couldn't even say that it was Janice even though he knew. It was like it's bad. There's a person in here. And it's like he knew it was Janice, but it was it was like he couldn't put a name to it. It was no, so- it's horrible. Horrifying. Yeah, it was so horrifying. But his grandfather was not reacting the way he thought he was going to react. He was saying, we got to call the police. We got to call the police. And his grandfather just started crying. So he's crying and he said- We can't call the police. It's going to kill Ethel because the grandfather's wife, the grandmother, had recently suffered a heart attack and she was in extremely delicate health. He's like, if she finds out what he did and we have the cops swarming around here and it makes the news, it's going to kill her. We can't let anyone know about this. And Michael would later tell the FBI, I didn't want to kill my grandmother. So there was nothing I could do for Janice. But I didn't want to kill my grandmother. And there was still something I could do for her.
0: I know. But with all of that, how are you supposed to like, that's so much emotion and information and pressure and burden. And it's not his fault.
1: It's it's a lot. It's John's fault for putting them in this situation. So instead of calling the police, they call John. And here is what John said happened. So he ends up, he was living out of state. He ends up driving to them as fast as he possibly can because they're like, we looked in the box. We know that what's there, you have to come get it and you have to explain yourself. And so when John shows up, he said that he knows that it's Janice in the box. He said it all started when... Two guys came up to him, and this is uh, from The Stranger in My Bed by Michael Fleeman, and either drugged him or blacked him out somehow. Michael said he could not remember all the details. These guys, according to John, were an FBI agent and a Wayne County Sheriff's Deputy. When John came back to consciousness, he was in a warehouse. Next to him was Janice, dead on the floor. The men were laughing at John, telling him that they were going to frame him for murder. What... This is his story. This is his story about why his ex-wife is in this box that he Michael saw him constructing. He said that then they knocked him out or drugged him. He next woke up in a trailer in Wooster, Ohio. Janice's body was now on the floor of the trailer. John picked her body up and ran outside to his van and put it inside. He drove away just as the Wayne County Sheriff pulled it into the driveway with the lights on. This is what he's saying. As outrageous as the story was, Michael said that he wanted to believe it. He said, you know, you grew up with somebody. He's your brother. He could have told me that a rock from the moon came down and cracked her on the head. And I, I wanted to believe it. Given the choices, do I want to believe this? Or do I want to believe my brother killed his wife? I mean, he really loved her. I mean, he loved her more than me. So he chose to believe him, even though he knew And he told his brother that he had to get rid of the box. Michael suggested bringing it to a construction site. So their stepfather ran a construction crew. You can't just keep going and dropping around the body of your ex-wife in these different
0: places of your family members. This is asinine.
1: Yeah. Well, he's saying that they're laying the concrete floor. It's going to be a parking garage basement. And you can put it in the concrete. So that was Michael's suggestion. And John... Allegedly said, no, this is my problem. I'm going to take care of it. And he just drove off. They never talked about it again. In fact, Michael could not talk to her or see his brother for a year because he was so disturbed by this. But they never spoke. He never found out where the box had gone. So he couldn't even help the FBI locate Janice other than that one suggestion that he had made that maybe he followed up on and just didn't tell him. So this momentary, terrible decision haunted Michael for decades. After he made that decision, he was stuck. He was just stuck because he said later he regretted it deeply, but now he was an accessory. Now he had facilitated murder after the fact. And so he was terrified of his brother a little bit but he was mostly terrified for himself. He thought he was going to go to jail maybe for the rest of his life for helping his brother do that. And that's why he never spoke to the police. That's why he never told the FBI originally. But it had haunted him for so long. And when he finally confessed and revealed everything to his wife, she was like, of course you have to go forward. There is no there is no way you can let these poor women's families have these questions for the rest of their lives. So he decided that he would go forward with it. He was going to do tape recorded phone calls with his brother. And he also said that he would eventually testify against him. Wow. It's
0: so scary and brave. It's a lot.
1: And he did love his brother. I mean, obviously that created a rift when he made that terrible discovery. But up until that point, they had been extremely close. So this was heartbreaking for him. In the meantime, the investigators went to the apartments where that concrete had been laid that Michael had suggested maybe getting rid of Janice's remains. Using ground penetrating radar and an incredibly gifted human remains detecting dog named Eagle, they were able to determine that something was buried in the parking garage of the building. Okay. And this dog was wild. I guess on the 2020 that there there was about this episode, they said if usual like sniffer dogs are like one to 10, Eagle was a 20. Whoa. Yeah, it's really cool. In Stranger in My Bed, they kind of outlined the whole process of how the dog indicates and how they're trained. And it's it's really fascinating, but guys, this is already getting to be a long story. So- <laughs> So Eagle first went in and alerted to human remains. And then the FBI brought the ground penetrating radar in right where Eagle indicated. And then they decided to dig it up. Unfortunately, all they found were some teeth. Really? Yeah. So when they first found the teeth, they were like, this is great. We're going to find everything. They dug up the whole garage and All they found were a couple partially broken teeth. Quick question. So they have not
0: connected the actual lady in the box with this case yet?
1: No. So they have not found Janice yet. So we know because I told you guys at the beginning. Yes. And everything that Michael's describing is making sense to us. It doesn't make sense to anyone else because also they were looking in Ohio They sent out the letter being like, this is a description of what we're looking for, including it would be in a box. Her legs would be cut off at the knees. She was this tall. And they sent that out to law enforcement agencies in Ohio, thinking that he had gotten rid of her in Ohio.
0: Also like terrifying that they still found teeth then
1: in the concrete. Exactly. So they still found teeth and these teeth were tested. They were not Janice's. Ooh. Now, the concrete was laid in 1974, so they were almost definitely not Franz either, but they still tested them against Fran's daughter, and they were also not Franz. What?: Yeah. Oh my God. So we're thinking at this point there must be a third victim.: Yeah. And they still haven't found Janice. Whom they are mostly looking for right now, because with Michael's testimony, if they can also find the body, then they have the best case to nail him on Janice.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: So the authorities finally expanded their letters. Like I said, they were only looking in Ohio, so now they decided that they were going to send letters to every law enforcement agency across the Midwest, because any place that it would be feasible that he could have driven to in a time frame and gotten rid of the body somewhere. So they do that. They keep investigating and they found a family who had befriended John after Janice's disappearance. So he went and worked for this company. He met this guy who was older, but they became friends and he kind of took John under his wing at this company. And John had a crush on his stepdaughter, who was 18 at the time, so still super gross. And she had mentioned how she wanted to get a new watch. And apparently he had brought her a watch that was a beautiful watch that had emeralds on it. And when she said, where did you get this? And he said, it was from my wife who died, died. And he said that definitively to her. And they said, well, John, we didn't even know you were married before. And he's like, yeah, she died of cancer. It's really sad. So he had kind of confirmed that she had passed and they took the watch and they brought it to Janice's sister who had picked it out with their mother and both her sister and her mother positively identified the Emerald watch that they had helped him buy for her. Michael recorded a phone conversation with John where he warned him that the FBI was following up with him and that he could not lie any longer he basically said, they're sniffing around. They keep wanting to talk to me. I don't want to lie anymore. I'm tired. Janice was in the box. Like, what do you want me to say? And he did not confirm anything, but he said, you have to do what you think is right. You have to do whatever you're going to do. And I love you. And so Michael said, okay, well then I'm going to, I'm going to tell them the truth. And he said, okay. And he just said, I love you. And he hung up the phone. Whoa, heavy. So now he knows that the truth is coming out. He was at this time still married to Diane back in California. Okay. And concurrent with this going on, Diane was starting to finally realize just how dangerous her husband truly was. So there had been an episode of 2020 about this, and she had gone on the show and she had completely defended him and said she was standing by her man. When this all came to light, when the FBI spoke to her, John had convinced her that, yes, he had had another wife before, Fran. And no, Fran had not died of cancer like he had told her. So yes, there were some lies there. But both women had disappeared, but it was not about him. It was just a terrible coincidence. just that unlucky. Yes. Yep. It's one of those classic unlucky guys and gals we have with the wilting spouses. Disappearing wives. The disappearing wives. And she believed him for a little while. Sherry wrote in her book that she kind of thought that no one had ever taken care of Diane the way John was. Like he bought her a Ferrari. He was taking care of her. He was showering her with presents. And she really wanted to believe that he was this great guy, that he was this nice guy. It's the same thing that Michael says when he says, well, of course I heard the story and it didn't make sense, but the alternative was believing that my brother was a murderer. And that's a hard thing to do. And, you know, we can say that from the outside. Well, that's a leap you have to take, but it's a hard leap to make when it's someone you love and trust.
0: It's psychologically mind-fucking. Like, how are you supposed to manipulate Instantly. I mean, I think also women have so much more of that like intuitive, they think ahead and plan ahead and like have speculation way more than men, too. So I think that, and that's just like human nature. So I think it's, oh, I think it's human
1: nature, but I would also argue that it is evolutionary. Because we have to have a sixth sense because men have been killing us for generations that we have to be a little bit more on edge, suspicious, anxious, aware, trusting our guts. And like, obviously, when you become a
0: mother or when you're taking care of anything or anyone, you're a little bit more aware of your surroundings and and people around you. But I think for that dude, I don't think he could have
1: ever emotionally or psychologically prepared himself for that news. No. No. So yeah, they had met in Escondido through a mutual friend and I think a coworker and just like John's marriages, which is really interesting that Sheila was like an eight year long girlfriend when every other one of his marriages he married extremely quickly. Now Diane was similar to Fran insofar as she had been married a few times. She had been run through the ringer. She had grown children from previous relationships And she was looking for stability, security, happiness, and John seemed to provide that. Now, Diane didn't mind so much when John traveled, but what did drive her crazy was that he was always on his computer almost all the time when he was home. She would find out much later that he wasn't just a murderer. He was also a cheater. John was cheating, communicating with other women, seeing other women physically. He had more girlfriends while well, he was married to his third wife. And so she was a little suspicious about that, but that was the only thing on her mind. She obviously did not think that she had married a killer. <laughs> Two very different things. Yes, she was a little suspicious that he was cheating, but not that he was a killer. In fact, she thought that he had worshipped Fran. He had told her that Fran had passed away of cancer after they'd been married for seven years when he and Fran were only married for 17 months.
0: Yeah, so many lives
1: so many lies. He had a huge photo of Fran hanging in his living room. And when she moved in, he was like, oh, I'm sorry. Does that make you uncomfortable? And she's like, no, I know you're grieving. But then after six months of marriage, she was like, can we maybe just put it in a different area? Like not directly above our couch, (laughs) our couch where everybody sees it when they walk in. Yeah. So. Her head is kind of spinning when the FBI comes in. But then she goes on the 2020. She defends him. She says she's standing by her man. Now, Sherry and Deanna see they're also participating in this episode. And when they see her standing by her man, they're like, they say on the show, run, run, girl, run. Jesse, just to go back to that photo is like such a trophy. Such a trophy. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like she thinks,
0: yeah, she thinks that it's like a morning photo and processing and it's actually like him putting her up on
1: the wall oh you're right that i didn't even think about that it's disgusting it is disgusting oh wow woof yeah so fran's family of course is like we have to save this woman so they send a note through the 2020 producers to try to get to her, to reach out to her and say, Please give us a call. Here are our phone numbers anytime you can you wow. know talk to us. And they do eventually connect. And Diane was all over the place. Sherry says that, like, she definitely seemed like she had not really been taken care of in life, and John was taking care of her. and he seemed like it was fine. And at the beginning, she she was open. She was very open to talking to them. And and eventually, they have a pretty open and very good relationship. But at first, she wasn't quite convinced. And when they were like, you have to run, yeah. get out, she was like, oh, he's not going to kill me because the cops and the FBI are all over him. The 2020 producers are all over him. If he kills me, it's just really obvious. So I feel like I'm safe.
0: It's not a good reason to feel safe.
1: I don't think so either, especially because she had a grown daughter who would also spend time with John, too, which I would not be crazy about if it was me personally. So eventually, Sherry convinces her she's in trouble. The FBI convinced her that there's ample evidence against him. Diane confronted John about Michael's confession. So when they find out about the confession, the FBI immediately tells Diane. Yeah. Because she had not been quite believing that... Her husband had done this. And so she confronts John about it. And his excuse for the story was that Michael had been mistaken and that, yes, there had been something decaying in the box, but it was not a woman. It was a dead goat. Um. He said that his brother had freaked out for no reason and John had disposed of the box For him somewhere in a farmer's field, is what he said. He did not tell her exactly where. And he did not say that he had any culpability of putting said goat in box. He said he doesn't know where the goat came from in the box. He was just the person who got rid of it for Michael. Mm -hmm. Summer, Diane's daughter, asked John directly if he had killed Jan, and he refused to answer. He did not give her any answer, not even a denial. So at that point, Diane is ready to nope right out of this marriage. And she did get an annulment, thank goodness. And she was very prepared. She set up a restraining order to get everything in place for when the papers were going to be delivered. She changed her locks. She changed her cell phone number. She had her daughter move in with her and had people around all the time. So she had all of this prepared for when he got the... Paperwork that she was annulling the marriage. And thank goodness she had done all of those preparations because the one and only time that she was scared for her life was when he got the paperwork and he came over to her house like a bat out of hell and tried to break through a window. Wow. Then actually physically broke through the front door that was locked. And he came in with such a look of pure hatred and anger on his face, that she was genuinely terrified. And then he saw Summer, so he saw that there was going to be a witness and his face changed and it was like, he became this different person. And he was like, I just wanna talk to you. And she was like, well, there's a restraining order, so you have to leave. And he did leave. And then there was another occasion where the police were supposed to escort him into the house to get his things. But he waited so that when she pulled back up, he was still outside in his car and he pulled his car up to hers and he was basically said, how could you have done this to me? This is what my last wife tried to do, which is suggesting that the detective's theory is correct, that Fran was potentially ready to leave him. Yeah. And he prevented her from doing so. So Diane was officially single once more and also that means that she is free to testify against him too. Great. Yes. Unfortunately, they still hadn't located Janice or Fran's remains by the end of 1999. This was hell for both families and Fran's sister writes about it heartbreakingly in her book, My Sister is Missing. Just as the prosecutor was considering charging John with Janice's murder even though there was no body. And it wasn't really the prosecutor. It was the district attorney. The prosecutor was ready to go. She was like, let's do this without a body because we have to protect people because this man that they know is a killer is out there walking on the streets. But it was a very hard case to win. So there was a lot of legal loopholes and convincing. It was very hard on Fran's family, especially. And they didn't have such a warm relationship at this point because they were pushing forward with wanting their day in court. When I can understand why you wouldn't go forward without a body, if you do not feel you can actually convict, then obviously you don't want to get into a double jeopardy situation. Yeah. Yeah. Just as the prosecutor was considering it, well, the DA and the pr- prosecutor, that is when they finally located Janice. Whoa. Mm-hmm. One of those letters finally reached the hands of a near-retired detective named Jerry Berman. In 1980, he had been a young deputy who had secured the perimeter when the lady in the box was discovered. Now he was holding a letter that sounded exactly like her. So it was it was basically a letter from the Ohio police being like, here's a description. If you have found a Jane Doe, let us know. And he's reading it and he's like, wooden box, check, cut off at the legs, check, looks like to be a petite woman, check, check, check. And so he called the detective in Ohio and he said, I think I have your girl, which was the best moment of this case for everybody involved the grave of the lady in the box was exhumed and she was DNA tested against Janice's mother's DNA. It was a perfect match. Oh my God. They had found Janice and a 20-year-old plus mystery had been solved. In a very strange twist, Janice had been exhumed on March 2nd, 2000, what would have been her 49th birthday. Whoa. hmm Whoa. On August 21st, thousand, twenty six 26 years after Janice disappeared, she was officially declared dead. The cause was determined to have been homicide. Based on the lack of bullet holes or knife marks or any obvious damage using some sort of weapon, they believed that John had strangled Janice. John was also a car collector and they managed to hunt down the Corvette that John had been driving at the time that Janice disappeared. Wow. Yep. And luckily, the person he had sold it to had kept it and kept it in pristine condition. So they were able to match the box to the back seat, see that it fit perfectly, and also find scratches on the leather interior that completely matched up with the corners of the box. Isn't that wild? Yes. So given that a Corvette isn't a very big car and that this box fit perfectly in the Corvette, that might be the reason why he cut Janice's legs off at the knee. Later, however, the prosecutor would argue that it could be that, but it could also be metaphorical. He was saying, now you'll never be able to walk away from me ever again.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could be, it could definitely be either, but it's... Seems like that. Seems
1: rationally, he's an engineer. Yes. That it was a matter of size and fitting. Yes. Well, John, boy, I don't think you'll ever walk free again. Because on October 3rd, 2000, he was arrested for the murder of Janice Hartman and his trial kicked off on July 6th of 2001. Now, the prosecution wasn't able to bring up anything about Fran's disappearance. But you better believe that Fran's loved ones, including the steel-willed Sherry Gladden Davis and her amazing daughter Deanna, of course, were there staring that monster down with no fear. Despite the fact that they couldn't bring in any evidence about Fran's disappearance, the prosecution's case, I felt, was pretty compelling. I mean... They've got Michael testifying about seeing Janice in the box that John constructed, hid, and later removed from their grandfather's home. There was the fact that John had been the last to see her. They had the watch and the testimony that John had called the previous owner his deceased wife. And they also had, of course, the DNA evidence that proved that that was Janice and the scratches in the Corvette that perfectly matched the box. The defense argued that Janice had been attacked only days before her disappearance and had noted in police reports that the man with the shotgun had said something along the lines of, there's an easy way out for narcs. So the defense said that this paired with the phone call Janice's mother received about her missing a court date, about a drug testimony, suggested that Janice could have been killed because she was an informant or just those guys were worried about her making further trouble for them when the attempted rape. They also brought up the witness who placed Janice in her car with a strange man. So they were countering what the prosecution said about John being the last one seen with Janice. They were saying there was somebody that said in 1974 that they saw her with a man. Now, again, like I mentioned, this woman did recant her statement to authorities, but was too scared to testify at his trial.
0: Yeah, Yeah, seems shady.
1: Michael was the star witness and the defense attempted to discredit him because of all of the years that he had lied or omitted what he knew to the police. This was a mistake. The defense attorney actually ends up talking to Michael Fleeman in his book and said, it was a bad day. This wasn't a great day. Maybe I went too hard on him because it turned out Michael was very sympathetic to the jury or the jury was very sympathetic to Michael rather. He was a sympathetic character that he was trying to hammer on him on, why didn't you ever go to the police? Why are you coming up now? You lied for years and years and years, and now you're telling the truth. And it was just pretty heartbreaking. It kind of backfired in his face because not only did the defense attorney look like a bully, Michael was so clearly in so much pain and testifying was so hard for him. He said, the reason I didn't call the police, I was scared to death. I thought I was part of a murder that I had nothing to do with. I was there. I seen the box. I found the box. And I opened the box. I called my brother. He came and he got it. Now, unfortunately, when you're guilty of something, you don't think about the statute of limitations or whatever. I mean, it happened. It's nothing that you want to think about, you know. I was hoping to bury this. But this thing just don't bury. It just don't go away. You don't have the nightmares. I do. My heart kind of breaks for him. Yeah, I guess the courtroom went completely in silence, like after he said that. Yeah. Also like the pressure
0: of what his grandfather said as well. Yeah. That's in and of itself
1: terrifying. Exactly. And that was how he rationalized it. He couldn't do anything for Janice, which is, it's really interesting because I paraphrased in that part earlier. He said something, I couldn't do anything for the lady or something. Like he said something, it was like he was separating himself from it. Mm -hmm. Mentally, I couldn't do anything for her now or for the lady, but I could do something for my family in protecting my grandmother. Oh, human beings are so complicated. I know. After closing statements from both sides, the jury was released to deliberate. It only took them about half a day to find John David Smith guilty of killing his first wife, Janice Hartman. Okay. Now, there were a few people that wanted to acquit. They said that it was based pretty much on. Michael's testimony that they convicted, they did go for aggravated murder, which they acquitted him on because they said that there was no proof that he had been abusive to Janice. They had some testimony that he had a bad temper, but there was not enough evidence that she was terrified of him, that she had been abused, that... He had killed her in a aggressive or cruel or, you know, any murder is aggressive and cruel, but like something particularly
0: heinous. Yeah, they were going out to celebrate their divorce with drinks. It's like it didn't seem like she had a restraining order on him or she was like...
1: Yeah, and I honestly don't know if Janice was scared of him. I think that she was shaken up when he made that threat and that's why she told her mom and that's why she got out because she's smart. But I do think... That a lot of times people of all ages, but especially young people, I know I was like this when I was younger, you think you can handle it. You think you can manage a relationship. There's been a couple situations that I put myself in that I realized maybe a little too late that I could not handle this. And if things got violent, I could not protect myself against somebody. And that's, you know, something I'll educate my daughter about because you want to believe that you're an equal person on equal footing and the person that you chose to love is somebody that is deep down rational and reasonable and a good person. But that's not the case always. No, it's not always the case, unfortunately. So we have to protect ourselves. So he was acquitted on an aggravated murder, but he got guilty on the murder charge, which means he was going to go away for a very long time. And the response was very emotional when the verdict was read Sherry hugged Deanna and Gary Hartman hugged his wife and daughter. Sherry told reporters, he's not going to kill anybody tonight and he's not going to kill anybody else for a very long time. Yep. And her husband added, and now we have to find her sister, which I think was Sherry's first goal was to make sure that he was locked away so he couldn't hurt anyone else. And now the focus needed to turn to finding Fran. Gary called his mother, Betty, in Florida and told her the news. He said, Mom, we did it. And she said, Amen. Thank God. So Prosecutor Stefanson cried after this verdict, and she had never cried of any case she'd ever tried in her life. It was just so emotional. And she has a very young daughter at the time at home who was home with the babysitter And the babysitter let her stay up until her mom could get home. And this part, like, makes me cry a little bit. (laughs) I'm thinking about my kids. But she came home, and I guess her daughter was like, Mommy, you won the case, and the bad man's going away and stuff. And it was just very emotional. At sentencing, the judge allowed Fran's family to speak as well. So he said, I'm aware that we did not allow any evidence about Fran's disappearance, but I think it's appropriate that you also get to speak at sentencing. Sherry Davis's words were spoken directly to John, who refused to make eye contact with her. She's so badass. And she did. She gave him how This is what she said at the sentencing. John, you came into our lives by way of my sister's love. Because of her love, we trusted you. We trusted you to put her welfare above your own. You have violated that trust. By your hand, my sister's children have lost their mother. Her grandchildren have lost their granny. I have lost my sister and my best friend. As a family, we have proved to be a force to be reckoned with. For the past two and a half weeks, Janice has spoken in this courtroom and through these proceedings, Janice has found justice for herself and her family. Fran has not spoken yet, but we as a family will continue our efforts to give Fran's memory the justice it deserves. With the help of authorities, this family has tracked you for nine years, nine months, and 18 days to get to this day. Oh my God. She's amazing. So amazing. But this is not over for our family. We are not going away until you tell us what you did with my sister's body after you killed her. I promised my mother on her deathbed that I would find my sister and I will to my last dollar, my last breath, work to fulfill that promise. Oh my God chills. She is so truly badass. And she carried on and she kept going. And guess what? Even after I'm gone, my family will keep fighting. We will hunt you down for the rest of your life until you tell us what you did with my sister. Wow. And we know where you are now. We do. And you're stuck. So John was sentenced to 15 years to life, but it looks like it's definitely going to be on the life end of that sentence. Sherry and Deanna remain true to the words she spoke at sentencing. They have spent countless dollars, well over $100,000 and many, many years of their lives fighting to bring Fran home and get justice. They have hired psychics, private investigators. They have contacted every level of government. You name it, and they have done it. Because John killed Janice at a period of time, when capital punishment was definitely outlawed in Ohio. They could not use it as a bargaining chip to compel John to reveal where Fran was. That's so annoying. Which is so annoying, because if it had been the other way around, if they had managed to find Fran's body, they could have prosecuted him with the death penalty in New Jersey and then said, we'll take death penalty off the table if you tell us where Janice is. It could have worked in reverse But because of when the exact window of time that he murdered Janice, they didn't have that bargaining chip, unfortunately, which again, you know, we're against the death penalty in general. But I do see how in cases like this, it's a very, very useful tool. In January of 2001, the police discovered a storage locker. That belonged to John and another one belonging to his mother, Grace, in Ohio. In both units, human remains were discovered.
0: What?
1: They found bone fragments and specifically skull fragments that belonged to a woman. They did not belong to either Fran or Janice. Uh... Now... I did not read anywhere that they tested these skull fragments against the teeth found in the basement of that apartment building. So I do not know if this could have potentially come from the same victim or even an additional. So we are looking at a minimum of three, maybe four, maybe more. He's clearly pretty good at hiding his life, his remains, his intentions, because they still have not found Fran yet. So in a bizarre letter sent to Deanna in August of 2002, John claimed, this is the last time they ever heard from him. John claimed to have killed at least 30 women. Excuse me? Yes. Now, I don't know if I believe that. I yeah, don't didn't know if you say at the beginning. He's braggadocious. He's a braggadocious, braggadocious. Like, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Janice's mother said he was always a bullshitter. He just yeah. bullshitted all the
0: time. Yeah. I feel like that's him tooting his own stupid horn.
1: Yeah. And he called Fran's family and the investigative team that they had put together as a ship of fools. In the same letter, John wrote that he had a direct line to a celebrity who was going to make. A movie out of the manuscript he had written. Can you guess which celebrity he said he had a direct line to? Johnny Depp. Nope, it was Nicolas Cage. No, it was not. <laughs> yes, Wait, he obviously was lying.
0: I, mean, I, I was hoping that he didn't have any sort of thought about Nicolas Cage
1: ever. Yep, he said that he had a direct line to Nick Cage and he was going to help him make his manuscript into a movie. There was absolutely no truth to this. Okay, that's so crazy. Which is why we can pretty much discount that he actually killed 30 women. Because this it seemed like this whole thing was just a very bizarre line. And Sherry even says in her book that she doesn't even know if he wrote it because it's a typed letter. It was his signature. And the avenues that it went through seemed like it came from the prison. But who knows? So there's a chance it wasn't even... John who wrote that letter. It has never been confirmed or denied by him. How dare him throw Nick Cage into this?
0: (laughs) Into his fucking mess.
1: It was so funny. I like that. Like I was like, the reason she is not saying Nick Cage first is because she doesn't want him involved in this situation. No, you could not
0: be more accurate.
1: (laughs) So John is now 71 years old and he is not looking well, folks. He does not look like he's going to get out of prison alive. He's looking very sickly. That's what happens when you're a shit person. Yeah, you rot from your dirty, rotten core. So he was indicted in Mercer County, New Jersey, for Fran's murder in 2019. And in anticipation of a potential trial, they moved him to a prison in New Jersey instead. According to an October 25th, 2021, NewJersey.com article by Kevin Shea, He was moved and then he was offered a plea deal. So they said that they would give him 20 years if he would admit what he had done and say where Fran could be located. I don't know what happened with this. Plea deal. It doesn't look like it was accepted. I'm not entirely sure where that went. The prison did confirm the New Jersey prison that John Smith is still an inmate, and it appears that his earliest parole date would still be 2029. But I really very strongly believe that he is not going to make it to 2029. However, I would like for Fran and her loved ones to get her day in court. Deanna sued John Smith in civil court, and the judge did say the following. The court finds that by a preponderance of the evidence that it is more likely true than not true that John D. Smith had caused the death of Betty Fran. Saying that he awarded them $1 million, which they will likely never see. Because John claims he doesn't have any more money. Which may be the case, who knows. But they were really doing it more to hear a court rule that he had done it and to put pressure a lot of times when a family has a civil trial, it is to put pressure on the state to look at the evidence that's coming up in the civil trial and consider pressing criminal charges as well. So I will stay on top of this. I'll keep you guys posted if there's any updates on Fran's trial. Fran's children and grandchildren are grown and thriving. Sherry gives updates on her kids and their grandkids and their marriages, all at the end of her book, which is lovely. And Sherry herself speaks at rallies for the missing to spread the message that family involvement is essential to missing persons investigations. She said, statistically, when the family's involved and they push, 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 those are the cases that get solved. Mm Mm-hmm. So never negate your own experience. And obviously we as true crime podcasters with a platform need to be spreading more awareness about certain missing persons cases, which Andy and I are going to be doing very soon with a new segment we're going to be doing on Monday's, I think Monday's, yeah, Monday's Current Affair, which we're going to be able to talk about open missing persons cases.
0: I think also we need to take a little bit of responsibility in focusing on people who maybe don't have family members that have resources and the ability to speak up because like a lot of women and people in general who go missing don't have
1: siblings like Sherry. Yeah. And who was not easy for her. This was a financial hardship for her and her family. They were not wealthy people. But even given that, the fact that she was able to, yeah, you're right, Andy, there's a lot of people that are not in that that circumstance and are not able to get help. So I think that the best tool in that respect is probably people in the media, people who are true crime podcasters, news and trying to get the message out any way you can. So we'll be doing a lot more of that going forward, guys. So keep that open for us and let us know if that there's any missing persons cases that you want specifically us to cover or you believe don't receive the awareness that they deserve. Sherry will never give up. She said her goal is to bury Fran, home with the family in Florida. And she ends her book with this line, all in capital letters, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Oh my God, stop. And that is a really strong message that you can't give up hope. And that the most heartbreaking things that people can say is something, well, I don't think they'll ever be found. And that is not a message that anyone should be spreading ever. No. As long as there are people out there who love Fran and there are and people who loved other ones that have gone missing, other people who have gone missing, it is not over till the fat lady sings. I mean, look at Janice's case. I know. She was missing for 26 years. How many years has it been for Fran then now? It was 1991 that she went missing. So we do have a Wikipedia fun fact. Wikipedia fun fact. There is a 2006 Lifetime movie based on Sherry's book, My Sister is Missing, and it's called Murder on Pleasant Drive, starring Adam Arkin as John, Kelly Williams as Deanna, and Amy Madigan as Sherry. I don't know any of those people. So I think you would recognize them if you saw their pictures. Because I didn't recognize their names either, but when I clicked on the IMDb page, I was like, "Oh, that guy," <laughs> <laughs> which is always an actor's dream. Yeah, yeah. And Adam Arkin is Alan Arkin's son. I, figured, and I think Yeah, yeah. Alan Arkin's the grandfather who does heroin from Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> He's also in a trove of other films, but yeah, that's the one that yes. really speaks to yeah. me. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you guys could call me out on this. I'm just spitballing. I'm pretty sure that was Alan Arkin. I'm pretty sure his son is Adam Arkin. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So we have like a lot to consider. We still haven't figured out when we're going to do our August watch party. We have a couple contenders because we have this movie, I think is also on YouTube. And of course, The Pastor's Wife, Rose McGowan, which we talked about potentially doing as well. I also want to give a shout out to Kara because... She recommended the Wendy Mae Davidson and Michael Severance case last week. And I guess I just must have gotten my Google pages crossed because I either did not remember or I didn't find it. So my apologies, Kara. Send us a DM and we will send you some stickers or some other fun stuff to say I'm sorry. And thank you so much for a great recommendation. In conclusion... Yeah, I don't know, guys. I don't know if carpentry and angry crying mix, really. So the next time you see somebody skipping out on a football game and crying and constructing a small coffin, maybe it should set off some alarm bells.
0: Yeah, I mean, huge red flag that some quote-unquote Buckeye fan is missing the OSU-Michigan game. (laughs) It's true.
1: And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. And remember that it's not over till the fat lady sings. Thank you guys so much for listening. Love you. Bye. Bye.